the National Labor Relations Board ruling could be the beginning of the end of the NCAA as we know it. Plus, three media giants are combining forces on a sports streaming service, the Las Vegas mayor responds to the reaction to my interview with her yesterday, and later we're looking back on this NFL season and ahead to the NFL draft with ESPN's Matt Miller. It's Wednesday, February 7th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. The National Labor Relations Board has declared that Dartmouth men's basketball players can vote to unionize. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Uh, great. Great to have you to take us through another NCAA lawsuit. Um, but this one, this is a biggie. Um, this this feels like, you know, pretty high up on the momentous scale. What does the NLRB's decision mean for the future of college athletics? Yeah, I mean, this really could be the death knell. Um, This could be the end of the NCAA amateurism model as we know it. Um, Essentially, the ruling that came out yesterday was to say that Dartmouth men's basketball players should be considered employees under U.S. labor law and that they should be able to unionize in addition to that. Um, And the ruling is 100% going to be appealed, but until then, you know, and depending on if the ruling is ultimately upheld, if it if it is upheld, there is no way that the NCAA can come back from this. Like, this is it. Yeah. Wow. Um, and in terms of that appeal, are we going straight to the Supreme Court or is there is there an appeals court in the middle somewhere? Yeah. So first, there is the national um, appeals court, like it's not an appeals court, but it's the national NLRB board, um, which is in DC. It's a five member board right now. It's only four members because one of the members there's a vacancy. Um, so then the board could take up the case. Then after that, um, it could go into the normal federal court system, circuit court, Supreme court, all that. So essentially, there could be three different levels in addition to the current one um, before we get a decision. Based on the Supreme Court's ruling in in the case that legalized NIL, um, it feels like they're they're gonna uh, if it gets to them, and it seems like it will, that they will rule in favor of college athletes being employees. Maybe they don't go that far. But it feels like their their sympathies are in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that the court of public opinion is a really good barometer at this point. Um, the Supreme Court ruled nine zero against the NCA in the last case. It wasn't a case about athletes being employees, but it was a case about the NCA's um, compensation limits. And ultimately, I think that there's a very good chance that. Um, you know, the highest court in the land, you know, and all the appeals courts in between at this point are going to see, um, you know, especially a lot of the Division One co- college athletes as employees. And you just referred to that as the death knell for the NCAA. What does that actually mean if, if it is declared that college athletes are employees? Yeah, that's such a good question because I feel like a lot of people say, oh, college sports is dead. Um, the NCA's business model is dead. Much That's a much different statement. And what do I mean by that? The sports are going to continue to be played. 
the concept of college sports can continue. All that needs to change is where the money is changing hands behind the scenes. Okay. So the NCAA is going to have to change its rules and its business model, most likely. And of course, that's going to have ripple effects on coaching salaries and the haves and the have nots, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, if we if we really want to preserve the concept of, you know, college football, Michigan versus Ohio State, um, you know, college basketball, Georgetown, Syracuse, like we can. Um, and I hope that we will. Uh, there, it's It's really a myth that college sports will cease to exist as we know them if the players have to get paid. Right. And I feel like that if we know them part is, is crucial here. The, the power Charlie Baker and the NCAA in general seem to be trying to preserve that, like preserve amateurism, preserve what it's been for a long time. And it feels like one way or another, they're going to lose that battle. And at some point people have to get on board with, creating a new vision, a new paradigm, a new business model for for college sports and probably one that looks a lot more like professional sports. Yeah, and I think that the thing that looks a lot more like professional sports is the concept of collective collective bargaining. That's really what college sports needs to, you know, regulate all of the 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 big issues that everyone talks about. NIL, you know, is is creating a system and, and the transfer portal are creating unrestricted free agency and a system of pay for play. And there's no, you know, regulations on when a player can leave and, you know, who can pay them this and that. All of that gets fixed with collective bargaining. Right. But you have to have employee status or at least that's usually how things go if you're going to have collective bargaining. Um, you know, so. We, we have to get away from this idea in order to in order to sort of rein things in. We actually need to be even more radical is what a lot of I think the advocates for collective bargaining are saying. But I think that's the piece that looks that is going to look like professional sports and that the college sports industry isn't going to need to look to to fix things. Yeah. And I think I guess the other big question for me is who is collectively bargaining? Like, is it. FBS schools or is it, you know, like ACC schools or like, you know, how are we dividing everything up again after, after everything blows up, um, assuming it all blows up. But I guess, you know, that's, that might be a question for another day, but yeah, I, I think your point is well taken that player representation is, is kind of the missing piece here. It's, it's kind of people, it's all very top down right now. Um, and, and once players can represent themselves, then we'll figure out, what it is they're prioritizing and and how much of a piece of the pie they're getting. And I guess we go from there. Yes. Yes, exactly. Amanda Christovich, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. Yesterday, we ran an interview I did with Las Vegas Mayor Carolyn Goodman. We talked about the Super Bowl, Vegas's rise as a sports city, and about the Oakland A's. That last part went viral because Mayor Goodman said that she thinks the A's current plan to build on nine acres on the lot currently occupied by the Tropicana Hotel, quote, doesn't make a lot of sense and will exacerbate existing issues with traffic in that area. She also said that the best outcome would be for the team to stay in Oakland. The mayor's comments caused a bit of a stir. When the stir got big enough, Mayor Goodman put out a follow-up statement saying in part that, quote, I want to be clear that I'm excited about the prospect of Major League Baseball in Las Vegas, and it very well may be that the Las Vegas A's become a reality that we will welcome to our city. 
She went on to say, it is my belief that in their perfect world, the A's would like to have a new ballpark on the water in Oakland and that the ownership and government there should listen to their great fans and try to make that dream come true. Should that fail, Las Vegas has shown that it is a spectacular market for major league sports franchises. On that front, there were additional complications on Monday. A political action committee backed by a Nevada teachers union filed a lawsuit against the state and its governor, Joe Lombardo, arguing that the bill that provided the A's $380 million in public money is unconstitutional. I don't know what's going to happen with this lawsuit, with the effort to challenge the funding through a ballot initiative, or with the fact that not even the mayor of Las Vegas seems to think this move is a great idea. What I do know is that the A's packing up and heading to Vegas is not a done deal, and right now nothing is going right. ESPN, Fox, and Warner Bros. Discovery are joining forces on a new sports-focused streaming service consolidating three of the big legacy sports broadcasters in one of the most dramatic moves to date in the cord-cutting-induced evolution of sports media. The timing of this announcement is very interesting. Obviously, this is Super Bowl week, and there's added attention on the sports world right now. We also have baseball season on the horizon, and that league is still trying to determine its broadcasting future. This new venture includes two of the three current national NBA broadcasters in ESPN and TNT, which is owned by Warner Bros. Discovery, and they are currently negotiating the next set of NBA media rights. It's well established at this point that the NBA is going to add at least one prominent streaming partner, and this new company is in some ways a natural fit. The new service will launch later this year. It does not have a name or a price as of yet. It will be owned equally by Disney, Fox, and WBD. This also raises questions about what happens to this year's Super Bowl broadcaster, Paramount, which is entertaining sale offers as it struggles in the modern ecosystem. Also, is Comcast content to go it alone with Peacock, or does it look for a dance partner now too? Either way, the ripple effects of this will be playing out for years. It's been a tough week for DraftKings. The sports betting giant has filed a federal lawsuit obtained by front office sports alleging that former executive Michael Hermelin stole commercially sensitive information before departing to Fanatics to run their division that targets high-volume sports bettors. The complaint accuses Hermelin of secretly meeting with Fanatics CEO Michael Rubin at last year's Super Bowl and timing his departure for maximum impact by joining Fanatics shortly before this Super Bowl. The allegations also include a plan to establish California residency as a way of getting around a non-compete clause in Hermelin's DraftKings contract and uses geolocation data on an email to show that Hermelin was in a Fanatic's office in LA when he wrote to DraftKings colleagues saying that he would be taking a couple of days off due to the death of a friend. Meanwhile, DraftKings is also dealing with complaints from its customers, resulting from the cancellation of the last part of the PGA's AT&T Beach Pro-Am tournament due to inclement weather. As the weather was getting worse, DraftKings continued to allow people to bet, and they did on the current leader, Wyndham Clark, who was declared the winner once the call was made to shorten the tournament. DraftKings voided those late bets, including one that would have paid out over $700,000, and people were not happy about that. We shall see if that anger is enough to drive users over to Fanatics or FanDuel or another of their competitors. Up next, I spoke with ESPN's Matt Miller on how NFL teams are going to adjust and potentially reallocate funds based on what happened this year. We're also looking ahead to the upcoming NFL draft class and how that could alter the fates of certain teams. That conversation is coming up next. All right, I am joined now by ESPN's Matt Miller. Welcome back, Matt. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, we, it's, we got like a monthly thing going here. I'm glad yeah. I get to see you. I get to see you like once a month. It's great and uh, always a good conversation. Um, so we've got a game to go um, uh, from for this NFL season. What was unique to you about this year? Yeah, you know, I've been asked this a couple times. And the thing I always go back to is the lack of offensive 
firepower or lack of explosive offenses this year. And I think I know people are going to say, like, what about the Dolphins? And yes, early in the year, the Dolphins were absolutely that team, but it, it fizzled out. You know, we saw the Kansas City Chiefs struggle offensively until the playoffs. We saw San Francisco struggle at times with the passing game, including in the playoffs. Baltimore certainly had their ups and downs. Buffalo had their ups and downs. Joe Burrow gets hurt. You know, so I, I do think that, like, this was the year, whether it's because defenses are catching up or because of parity, just spreading the offensive talent around the NFL so much. But to me, at least, and I, I'm going to have to look at the numbers after the Super Bowl, it felt like a down year for offenses. And, uh, you know, my job primarily covering the NFL draft, I can tell you there's a, a crop of offensive talent coming into the draft that, that's really going to help offset some of that, I think. But it, it felt like a year for defenses. Yeah, and it'll hit on the draft in a bit. I'm wondering if you think teams are going to recalibrate at all in terms of are they going to invest more in defense or, you know, put even more in offense? I mean, we've seen quarterbacks just get huge, huge, crazy contracts. Um, but, you know, it hasn't always resulted in a whole lot of points. Um, so, yeah, do, do you see any kind of reconfiguring about of, of where the value goes now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing we've seen, honestly, is the the recalibration is people just fire their offensive coordinators. You know, I, I, 2022 is like the longest tenured offensive coordinator right now. So it seems to be more like you got a quick, uh, quick hook on, as an offensive coordinator. But I do think, you know, I, being somebody who, you know, I live in Missouri Chiefs area, obviously, and I've watched all these AFC West teams. Like, oh, we're going to load up on offense to compete with the Chiefs. That hasn't worked. And then they're like, no, we're going to load up on defense to compete with the Chiefs. That hasn't worked. And so it's it feels like no matter what teams do, I, I think if I were consulting with NFL teams, I would say, build your team. Don't worry about everyone else. Build the best team you can instead of chasing the rabbit that is, oh, it's, it's an offensive year. No, it's a defensive year. Like, just build the best team you can as opposed to, how do we stop Mahomes or how do we stop Joe Burrow? Because you know, more often than not, you just need, you need the best team. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's what we've seen work for a team like the 49ers where they haven't so much chased, you know, the teams that were ahead of them. They've just worried about building a good team. And, and now, you know, like you said, they're one game away. Uh, but I, I will say offense is going to go fast in this draft. You know, quarterbacks are going to go fast. Receivers are going to go fast. Offensive tackles are going to go fast. So we could be sitting there, you know, the Sunday after the draft thinking, gosh, these teams really tried to, to fix some bad offenses. And it's it's a credit to the players who were going to be selected early are really, really good this year. Uh, but also, I do think teams are realizing offensive players make more money. And so you want to fill those spots with cheap labor, which comes through the draft. Yeah, and the Niners do seem like the main team that has successfully zagged against the current trends. Obviously, it helps that they have a quarterback who, you know, makes, you know, what, what people are paying for a, a Super Bowl suite, basically. Uh, but yeah, um, so, you know, it might not work every year, but, you know, they got the big running back. They, you know, their highest paid players, a defensive player. So, yeah, it, it, and obviously it's worked so far. Um and uh, before one more question before we jump to the draft, Bill Belichick did not find a job after, you know, obviously a, a few down years post Brady with the Patriots. But before that, masterminding one of the great sports dynasties, you know, certainly of the century. And, you know, we can go back further than that. What do you take from that of, you know, just every team just finding someone else? 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's also, it is a young man's game. You know, I think being in your 70s does make it a little bit tough. And and also, this is someone who has never worked with a general manager since he was in Cleveland in the late mid, mid-90s, mid uh, early to mid-90s. So I think that's another part of it. The game has changed. You know, we heard the Tennessee Titans owner say she wants a collaborative process when they fired Mike Brabel as head coach, another guy who didn't get a job. So we might all, you know, just be seeing a little bit of the Belichick style not working as much anymore. You know, it's, it is much more of a team effort. You know, you have a head coach, you have a general manager, you have a head of analytics, you have a a head of the salary cap. And for Belichick, he was all those things. And so I do think that, you know, maybe he takes the year off and, and, you know, kind of does what Mike McCarthy did when he took the year off. He's like, I've learned analytics. I'm ready to embrace the numbers. Belichick maybe needs to do the same thing and say, Hey, I've embraced, you know, uh, my personality and analytics and I'm ready to be, you know, a mentor to a team, uh, that's, that almost feels like the message is going to have to come out there because it is, I think it is changing. It's, it's becoming a much younger game. We have multiple head coaches hired who are still in their thirties and it, it does seem like ownership is looking at, you know, not just Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan, but Zach Taylor and the success that he's had D'Amico Ryan's what they just did in Houston. And those are all guys who have, have really embraced that, that idea of it's not just me. It's about the entire staff here. Yeah, and you're just saying it's sort of a what have you done for me lately league these days, as as you know, kind of every league is now. And Belichick hasn't done; he hasn't had recent success. So yeah, you'd be paying for what he did before, right? And not just on the field, but if you go back and look at their acquisitions, whether it be the draft or free agency, they have struck out. I mean, entirely. I don't. I think it's all the way back to 2013. They haven't signed a rookie to a second contract. Uh, it's, it's wild how poorly they've done. And it just goes to show, you know, like Tom Brady covered up a lot of problems in New England. And as soon as he was gone, those problems really came to light. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I've said before here that I, I always gave a little bit more credit to Belichick for the dynasty than Brady. And, you know, I think we've all had to, to recalculate that one a little bit. Um, cause yeah, I guess that the magic didn't work forever. And also he probably taught a lot of the league what he was doing and other people caught up and and maybe got better at it than he was absolutely yeah um let's let's jump to the draft uh which is you know a a favorite topic of yours uh what's just a super general question what's the big story for you heading into the coming nfl draft yeah i mean it it really truly starts at pick number one that's the chicago bears they have justin fields who they selected just three years ago he hasn't been terrible but he hasn't been great so they have a decision to make do they trade justin fields and select caleb williams do they uh, keep justin fields and and try to trade that number one overall pick which is what they did last year and it worked out so well that they're picking number one again because of that trade so it it really was a beautifully executed move by their general manager ryan poles but that's that's the the biggest domino I, i think that's one of my favorite storylines every year in the draft is where do the dominoes start falling and this year it really is it's at number one overall because the bears have the decision to make uh the washington commanders just hired cliff kingsbury to be offensive coordinator he famously is connected to caleb williams they were at usc together last year caleb is from the dc area he went to gonzaga high school so there's already you're starting to see the dot connecting of you know maybe maybe washington makes a move to get him but it all starts with chicago and would they even be willing to move out of that spot? Because he is the he's the bell of the ball. He is the player who will go first overall. Yeah, I saw some analysis a while back, and apologies for not being able to cite who it was, but basically saying 
the team trading for a number one pick, a number one overall pick, almost always overpays because you give up so much future value. You know, maybe you give up, you know, an early pick in that draft and then, you know, three more down the road. Um, and you just have to nail that pick or it's just not worth it. Um, do you think this year could be an ex- Is Caleb Williams good enough to break that rule? I think so. I mean, just looking back at the quarterbacks I've evaluated in my time, you know, he's up there with Joe Burrow. He's up there with Andrew Luck as in Trevor Lawrence, certainly as guys who you really don't think about it. You know, it's like, okay, whoever has the first pick, they're going to draft that player. Like they're, they're just really that special. And that's what makes this intriguing for Chicago because, you know, they finished strong. They, that number one pick is not because they were bad. They, they would have the number nine overall pick based on their record. Um, it's because Carolina traded up and overpaid and Bryce Young was bad and, and the team was bad. So I, I do think that, you know, Caleb is the no-brainer. Uh, people, you like to use the term generational when talking about prospects. That, like, to me, that's a little bit rich. But certainly, you know, over the last, you know, 10 years, I would say he's the, the best quarterback prospect that I've evaluated. And, and moving past that number one pick, does it get kind of murkier after that where, you know, we'll get to the usual thing of, like, teams trading and having different valuations of guys and it all just kind of being a big mess until until you see it happen? I think right now it's easy to, to forecast right now before free agency and say Chicago takes a quarterback, Washington takes a quarterback, New England takes a quarterback because those are the top three picks and all have a, a gigantic need at quarterback. But we don't know who's calling the shots in New England like we just discussed. Bill Belichick was the entire franchise. He's gone. They have not hired a general manager. So it, it definitely you know leaves things up to interpretation. And then after that, you know we have a lot of teams that have similar needs at wide receiver, offensive tackle. So uh, as I mentioned to kind of start the interview today, quarterback, wide receiver, offensive tackle are all going to go really fast because they're the good players in this draft, but also because all the teams at the top have really similar needs. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, as you're saying, do you think that is going to be enough to um, just put more offense in the league? You know, maybe not this very next year, but going forward, is it just a distribution of talent? I think so. I really do. Like, I I feel strongly that the quarterbacks coming in, the wide receivers coming in, you know, we have Marvin Harrison Jr., Malik Neighbors, Roma Dunze. Those guys would each be a number one wide receiver in almost any draft class. They're that talented. So that is definitely going to swing things. And, you know, a crazy thing has happened probably in the last four to five years where rookie wide receivers used to struggle. Like it was it was basically known. Don't expect a whole lot year one. It's not like that anymore. You know, we have Justin Jefferson coming in and Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, these Jamar Chase. They come in and they're immediately hugely impactable players. And so this year will be you know, interesting to see that. We could see three receivers drafted, <clears throat> excuse me, in the top six. And those guys will be expected to be number one wide receivers. So, you know, thousand yard guys, double digit touchdowns. So I, I do think, you know, whether it's for fantasy football purposes or NFL draft purposes or just people who love the game. I think we're going to see a nice offensive boost coming from these guys. Yeah. And I think that trend of players just being good faster when they enter the league is one that you can see across sports as training systems get better and more systemized and just, um, and expectations go up. Um, yeah, you're, you're not seeing this like two to three year ramp up the way that you usually would. It's like, you're good when you're like 26. It's like, you're expected and often do perform at, you know, 22, 23, or, you know, as soon as you hit the league. And it's too expensive. It's too expensive to develop those guys now. You know, I mean, it, it used to be, you know, since the rookie wage scale has obviously changed a little bit, but uh, even, you know, the top five, 10 picks in the draft, you're, you're making too much money to not be a core part of that team. So it's, it's very important.
Yeah, absolutely. Before we let you go, um, we got a game coming up on Sunday between the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers. Uh, who's your pick for the Super Bowl? Man, uh, so it's funny. I live south of Kansas City, as you know, but I have been a 49ers fan since I was six years old. So this is a, a tough game for me and my whole family. They're all Chiefs fans, so they all hate me right now. Uh, but I'm actually I'm going to pick Kansas City. I, mean, I have this rule. Uh, I used to say I would never bet against Tom Brady. And now it's I will never bet against Patrick Mahomes. So I, I think my final score prediction was 27-24 Kansas City. I, I think it'll be a relatively low scoring affair, but I'm excited. This is uh, it's a really good matchup. Just the way the teams, you know, X's and O's, the way they the strengths and weaknesses play against each other. So uh, it'll be fun either way. But uh, I, I picked the Chiefs to win. Yeah, I feel like until someone beats them, it's it's you kind can't of go against you, it, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, all right. Well, well, we shall see. Matt Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today. We can't promise politicians making news on the show every day of the week, but we can promise the biggest stories, biggest names, and top analysis in the sports business space. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.